My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. whether that's support for organizing a protest or support for paying legal fees or preventing an eviction or, you know, it's really a broad range of things. And I think we've now moved close to half a million dollars to several hundred requests that have come through in that time. It's usually between 1,000 and a few thousand dollars. That's the voice of John McFedron Waitzer. They and Andy Way are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. McFedrin, Waitzer, and Way are members of an organization called Resource Movement. With chapters in Montreal and Toronto, Resource Movement brings together young people from across Canada who have wealth and or class privilege to work towards the redistribution of wealth, land, and power. Wealth inequality in Canada is substantial and growing. This inequality is unjust in its own right because of how it profoundly limits the life opportunities and harms the health of those forced to live in poverty, including, disproportionately, people who experience the many and varied intersections with other axes of oppression. In addition, Public and political life are dominated by the wealthy and by institutions controlled by them, so that mainstream political agendas from conservative to liberal almost always center the interests of the rich. Moreover, in the ongoing reality of political struggle, institutions that represent the interests of wealth have no trouble finding the resources they need to operate, while grassroots social movements and communities in struggle inevitably have to scrounge for whatever they can find to carry on the fight. With some of these issues in mind, in the mid-2010s, a handful of young Canadians from wealthy families took part in programming from a U.S.-based organization called Resource Generation, which similarly mobilizes class-privileged youth to work for social justice. Back here in Canada, these young people began meeting in what they call praxis groups, small political education circles that work through questions of inequality, classism, and injustice, and what it might look like to be better allies to working-class people and movements. After a couple of years, there was a push by some, including McFedrin Waitzer, to found a formal organization, and Resource Movement launched in mid-2017. There's a keen awareness within Resource Movement of the long history of the actions of well-meaning rich people co-opting, harming, and otherwise failing to help social movements they claim to support. So right at the beginning, they hired two well-known leaders from grassroots movements in Toronto and Montreal to facilitate a sort of strategic planning process to come up with a structure and a strategic orientation for the organization. In that process, they identified three core priorities. One is a continued commitment to doing political education among their own members, including through praxis groups and other mechanisms. The second was to engage in work to move resources into social movements engaged in struggles on the ground, both through facilitating donations from individual members and also through collectively organized fundraising campaigns. And finally, Resource Movement makes use of the access that its members have to contexts in which power is concentrated to try to push a change agenda in those areas. Most recently, that has included a campaign for increased taxes on the wealthy and for tax justice, and a campaign to reform laws and regulations related to philanthropy. 
McFedrin Waitzer lives in Montreal, and they're 37 years old, which is towards the upper end of the age range of Resource Movement's constituency. Wei is a high school student in Toronto, and is one of the organization's youngest members. For both of them, in much the same way as for white people figuring out how to work against racism, and men figuring out how to oppose patriarchy, involvement in resource movement has meant having a lot of difficult conversations. About the violence and exploitation that wealth inevitably comes from, about the harms that class-privileged people unthinkingly do to working-class people around them, and about so much else. As well, the group is well aware of the skepticism that many participants in grassroots movements might hold for a group of wealthy people getting together to organize for change. According to McFedrin Waitzer, quote, We welcome that skepticism. We think it is essential, end quote. They continued, quote, We're really grateful to the grassroots organizers who have chosen to put their energy and their time into helping to keep us accountable and helping to keep our analysis sharp, end quote. I speak with McFedrin Waitzer and Way about the politics of organizing wealthy people in support of social justice, and about the work of resource movement. I'm Andy. I am a high school student based in the Toronto area, and I am one of the newer and, I believe, the youngest member in resource movement. And my name is John. I use they, them pronouns. I'm based in Montreal or Jojage. And I am one of the older members of Resource Movement. I am 37 years old. Resource Movement is a community of young people, 40 years old and younger, with class privilege, who are mobilizing one another to redistribute land, wealth, and power, and to make our society more fair. I think for me, part of growing up, especially in the last few years, has been a slow realization of just how much privilege I have and how lucky I am to live the kind of lifestyle that I do. For instance, one thing that's been on my mind lately has been what I want to study and where I want to go for university. And for me, I can study any subject I want without needing to make a choice that maximizes economic security or choose any university to apply to without worrying about student debt or financial aid. And that's something that for a long time I've taken for granted. And just one example of so many things that I have taken for granted. And resource movement is my first foray into grassroots activism. And the reason that I got involved is because I want to contribute to making society a more just and fair place. And I see redistributing resources as one of the most effective and powerful ways for accomplishing that. So for me, I came to Resource Movement and I was involved in helping to build the movement starting in 2017 after having done a bunch of work, never in grassroots organizing, but very adjacent to grassroots organizing. My last job before getting involved in RM had been leading a grassroots community organization in Montreal that works with young people and works with young people from a very politicized standpoint. And it was always with the idea of helping young people understand their marginalization or their challenges as part of larger social systems and plug them in to social movements that were looking to shift those systems. And for me, doing that work, especially as the director of the organization, as a white person, as a person with class privilege, it felt increasingly uncomfortable. And I, I really found myself asking lots of questions around what's the role of people with class privilege in particular in creating transformative social change and ended up landing on reflections around probably the, the place for people like me is not leading grassroots community groups. 
And a big part of that reflection came from thinking about the issues that we're looking to address being issues that don't occur naturally, but they're created by basically members of the elite. These are harms that are being created and worsened in an ongoing way. So the role for those of us who are members of those elites or who are connected to those elites is to try to stop the harm at the source rather than trying to deal with the symptoms or the consequences in sort of a charity context. And so that brought me to this group of people who were trying to organize young people with class privilege in order to sort of pull each other out of this myth of meritocracy, this myth that society is basically structured in a fair way and we just need to tweak some things and pull each other towards the work of deconstructing those myths and then figuring out how to be in solidarity with the grassroots movements that are working to actually change things. How was Resource Movement founded? Resource Movement was lucky enough to build up our work with a lot of very clear models in the U.S. There's a group called Resource Generation in the U.S. They've been around for over 20 years now. And the Canadians who were sort of the co-founders of, of RM before it was called Resource Movement joined Resource Generation Programming in the U.S. There were four or five of those people between the years of like 2013 through 2016. And they came back, they came together, and they started meeting up on these regular calls. And they started organizing these small groups that we still organize, actually. We call them praxis groups, little political education circles that meet together and that work to dismantle, again, the myths of meritocracy, that work to understand how classism plays out in our lives and our beliefs and to undo some of that mental distortion in order to be able to be better allies to working class people and the movements they lead. And then to actually figure out what are some structured ways of being accountable for the privilege we have and redistributing resources we have, redistributing social access that we have towards movements. And so this group was meeting on a pretty regular basis for a couple of years and really focusing on just this sort of decentralized small group political education. And then I was part of a group in 2017 that made the push to create an organization. We launched as Resource Movement in mid-2017. At that point, we had this big challenge of, you know, how do we set a strategy? How do we choose a structure in a way that reflects the accountability to grassroots communities that we want to have? And, and how do we avoid falling into the trap of being self-appointed allies to grassroots movements? And so we hired two pretty amazing organizers, one of whom is named Safa Shebi in Montreal, and the other whom is, is named Pascal Deverlis in Toronto. They were both pretty prominent leaders in the grassroots movement communities in those cities. And they worked with us for about four months to come up with the core strategy of RM, the structure of the organization, how membership would work. And then we validated that strategy with our members and with a circle of other social movement advisors. And we launched in early 2018 with that structure. And then it's been continuously evolving since then. There was a lot of work that went into thinking through accountability in particular. So creating these social movement advisor circles, and those circles are still active in Toronto, Montreal, and into thinking through, for example, when we create paid roles, and typically for those paid roles, we prioritize people who are not constituents of resource movements, so who don't have class privilege. What can we do as employers to make sure that we're reducing the potential harm of bringing working class movement organizers into working with mostly wealthy class privileged young people, knowing that having class privilege can distort our ways of seeing things and can cause us to behave in harmful ways towards folks who don't have those privileges just because of the way that our perceptions have been blocked by this privilege that we have. And so what we emerged with was essentially three big things that we wanted to do. Number one, we wanted to keep organizing our members and doing political education. We've heard again and again that so many social movements are ultimately blocked by 
members of elites who just don't understand how much harm they're causing. And so for us to be able to be in these communities and do this education is a really important thing for us to focus on. The second big thing that we emerged with was to be campaigning in an ongoing way to move resources into social movements. We do that through our political education in terms of just supporting our individual members to think about, do I really want to be supporting this big charity versus should I actually be supporting this grassroots movement? And then we also do it through more focused campaigns. We run a rapid response mailing list. So we have about 300 people who have opted in to receive direct requests for support from social movements and community organizers. And then we also run fundraising campaigns for particular projects. We've been supporting the Groundswell Social Justice Trust Fund in Toronto for the last three years, for example. And then the third piece was around using the access we have to certain areas, I guess, like sectors or, 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 or fields or institutions where power is really concentrated and where there's a lot of gatekeeping and using the fact that we have access to those sectors to push a change agenda in those sectors. So that led us to basically philanthropy and politics. And so we've been doing organizing to try to change philanthropy, which of course has been a pretty messed up way of concentrating wealth and asserting the power of economic elites over people who are trying to change the world and depoliticizing a lot of social change work. And then also engaging in politics. We've been organizing for a couple of years now to campaign for increased taxes on wealthy people in Canada. Who in general terms are the members of the organization beyond the general specifications that they're youth and class privileged? Actually, our membership is not restricted to people with class privilege. The only restriction we really have is that our members are roughly 40 years old or under, and we're pretty flexible with that too, honestly. But we have two kinds of members. We have constituent members who are part of our constituency of class privileged folks. And then we have advocate members who are either middle class, working class, or poor people who really feel a resonance with RM's mission and who want to be a part of the work. So our constituency is very clearly defined, but our membership is a lot more open. Our members are almost all constituent members, and we don't have an expectation that people who aren't wealthy are going to necessarily have a lot to gain by being a part of a group like this one. At this point, we have a little over 200 people who are actively involved in some way across Canada. And then we have a core active group of folks who are actually running different projects that varies between like 30 and 40 people. We feel it should really be up to anyone individually to identify whether they feel like they have class privilege or not. But when we get asked for numbers, which we always do, we say that we think about the upper middle class as the top 20% of the economy, whether you're measuring by income or by wealth. And then we think of wealthy folks as the top 10% and then high net wealth folks as the top 1%. And anyone who either through their own finances or their family's finances are a part of the top 20%, we would say, you know, that's a good rule of thumb for thinking through whether you're a constituent of resource movement. It's the top 20% that have clearly been accumulating more and more wealth for ourselves as a result of neoliberal policies, financialization of the economy, all these things have been happening since the 80s. So the idea is to bring folks together who have materially benefited from this accumulation and extraction of wealth from the majority of the, of the population. Tell me more about the political education side of the group's work and the Praxis groups. It's like a small group of five to ten people that meets once a month for six months. The core idea is to do a few things, to help each other learn how to tell the stories of our own access to wealth and our family's access to wealth in ways that don't reinforce the myth of meritocracy. So learning to name the ways that our families and we have received advantages that we did nothing to deserve, the ways that we have participated in structural violence or exploitation as a way of accumulating that wealth, challenging the myths that a lot of wealthy families have, and then also working to 
understand those dynamics, not just within our own families, but more broadly. So we always have a workshop on class privilege patterns. We always have a workshop around the history of wealth accumulation in Canada, looking at the specific ways that racism, capitalism, ableism, sexism, and other forces have locked certain communities out of wealth and extracted wealth from certain communities and then constituted that wealth within mostly white, male, able-bodied Christian communities, but certainly not exclusively. And then we have sessions that are around how do we actually move into accountability? How do we develop a better sense of what we have, what we need, what is it that we have that we actually don't need, and then what are we going to do with those extra resources? Where are we going to move them? How are we going to move them? How are we going to be transparent around that process? Who are we going to be in conversation with about that process? And so the idea is to always be moving back and forth between learning and committing to action. At our bi-weekly meetings, we usually have one or two members each meeting share what RM calls a money story a story of where your family's wealth or your own wealth comes from. And as John mentioned, how privilege and several interrelated factors have played a role in accumulating that wealth. For me personally, that's helped me become a lot more conscious about what my parents tell me about where our wealth comes from and how it was acquired. And also just realizing how privileged I am and how many of the things that I have are by no work of my own and arguably not entirely by the work of my parents either. How does the organization's work around shifting resources to movements happen? We run two kinds of campaigns, really. One is an ongoing campaign, a rapid response list. We have a group of about five or six volunteer members of resource movements, and they run this list. And it's a list that anyone is welcome to get in touch with to submit a request for support. And then we have about 300 people who are receiving those requests for support. None of the money goes through RM itself. We facilitate members to move money directly to folks who are asking for support, whether that's support for organizing a protest or support for paying legal fees or preventing an eviction, or, you know, it's really a broad range of things. That list has been running since 2017. And I think we've now moved close to half a million dollars to several hundred requests that have come through in that time. It's usually between 1000 and a few thousand dollars per request that we end up moving. And then we have more focused campaigns where we choose particular projects that we really want to support. And Groundswell has been the one that we've most supported because, you know, for us, there's always this question of, well, like if we're making a decision about where the money goes, then, you know, shouldn't it be grassroots communities that are deciding for themselves? And we love Groundswell because it's governed by a board of volunteers who are all themselves grassroots organizers or former grassroots organizers. And then when they make decisions about where the money goes every year, they bring a group of folks who are previous recipients of that money to help the board decide where the money should go. We just wrapped up our campaign and we ended up raising a little over $160,000 for Groundswell this year. What about resource movement's direct involvement in trying to make change? And maybe use the tax justice campaign as an example. We have enough resources and wealth in this economy to tackle the most pressing issues of our time and to support grassroots movements. The way our society is set up is so that wealth and power are largely self-reinforcing and they are more and more concentrated. We see wealth taxes as a direct way to address the problem at its source and to directly combat this wealth inequality and divert essential resources to these movements and to create political change. And for us with families or ourselves being members of the top 10% or top 1%, with our unique perspective, we can say that taking just a fraction of a fraction of our wealth 
the effect it would have on supporting these movements and creating change in our society would be enormous by comparison to the small sacrifice it would involve on our end. And that is why resource movement has been calling on the Canadian government to have a progressive wealth tax, as well as a progressive inheritance tax that only hits the top 10% of Canadians, so families like mine and John's and other resource movement members. When we hear that you know 85% of Canadians support a wealth tax, we all immediately think that, okay, well, those 15% people who don't support it, they're probably all rich people. And then politicians look at that and they're like, okay, you know, that's 15% of people, that's the majority of rich people who are going to make my life really hard if I try to push a wealth tax. And that very small number of people, of course, ends up having hugely disproportionate influence. And so for a person who is part of the elite to publicly join their voice to that larger 85%, it really does have an impact because it shifts policymakers' perception of how much resistance they will face from elites around progressive policies. So joining campaigns like the RM tax campaign from the specific experience of being a person who has wealth and who's probably expected to resist those measures can be a really great way of making a contribution. One of the advocacy tools that RM has been using for the tax justice campaign is a petition which now has almost 15,000 signatures. And another one of our tax campaign's more recent focuses has been joining a coalition of groups, including unions and think tanks and other groups that are lobbying for progressive change to form what is known as the Tax the Rich Coalition. There's something about that coalition for me that touches on our overall strategy in terms of where RM can make the most difference. And this is what comes from our social movement advisors in terms of where they have suggested we focus our energies. And that is whatever coalition we're a part of, we try to make sure that the demands we're making are, quote unquote, the most extreme or the, or the most radical. In doing that, we really use the privilege that we have where, you know, we are people who are pretty insulated from the backlash that might occur around naming really bold and assertive demands for change because of the privileges that we have and using the ability that we have to say things that might disturb elites without the vulnerability to elite backlash is a role that we've been encouraged to play by the movement leaders who advise us. I know from my own experiences of having conversations about racism and whiteness with other white people, having conversations about masculinity and patriarchy with other men, that some of that can be pretty hard. How does that show up for you and for members of resource movement around class? It's so helpful that you already started by making those parallels between classism and white supremacy and patriarchy, because of course, these are all just different systems of supremacy. There's a quote from Adrian Marie Brown that where we are born into privilege, our task is to unlearn every myth of supremacy. And where we are born into oppression, our task is to claim our liberty and our power and our joy. And so the work of unlearning class supremacy, wealth supremacy, is totally core to what we do. And it brings up a lot of fragility. Often it's really challenging for folks to encounter those for the first time and reflect on the ways that without even realizing it, we are causing harm in the ways that we show up. Any supremacy creates fragility because it creates all these blank spots where we don't even realize that we're causing harm. And then to be faced with that can trigger shame. And then we try to protect ourselves from that shame by projecting blame outward and by trying to reassure ourselves that we're a good person. So there's a lot of that really messy, gentle work that happens within resource movement. When we grow up in a deeply classist society and deeply unfair society, if we have more than we need, then we are constantly being given these narratives from our family and media, whatever, that it's like basically okay for us to have what we have. 
And then we look around and see that clearly it's not basically okay. And so we have this cognitive dissonance. And in order to resolve that cognitive dissonance, we end up needing to sort of deaden the part of ourselves that is able to connect to people who are different from us. It's a healing process. And like any healing process around supremacy, there's resistance and there's tears and there's nonlinear progress. And I think that's also part of why we get encouraged by the movements that we work with to keep doing this work, because it's just like white people holding each other through white supremacy and men holding each other through patriarchy. It can be really harmful for folks who are directly oppressed by those systems to try to educate their oppressors. A lot of being involved in ARM for myself and other members is actually having tough conversations with our parents. A lot of what I've grown up hearing is that we come from nothing or that my parents worked extremely hard to get to where they are, which is no doubt true, but also that we are quote unquote middle class or that we quote unquote live decent lifestyles. And part of being in RM is unlearning those habits and those things that we've taken for granted or assumed were normal based on the families we come from and the neighborhoods we live in. For my family especially, I think that talking about money and wealth is a sort of taboo subject. One of the biggest takeaways from my own arm involvement has been helping my parents become more aware and more conscious about their wealth and how to use it for social good. Another dynamic that I'm sure you must encounter is skepticism, at the very least, from people involved in grassroots movements about the idea of wealthy people organizing themselves to push for social justice. How do you respond to that skepticism? We welcome that skepticism. We think it's essential. Not only are we aware of the history of wealthy people deciding that we want to, quote unquote, support social movements and then totally co-opting and controlling those movements and then demobilizing them, which is a long history. There's a lot of research about it. So we feel like it's super important for us to recognize that what we're trying to do comes from a lineage of a lot of harm. And so it's really important for us to accept that skepticism. And we also see how that plays out even in our own membership. Like often when we recruit people into resource movements and they're earlier on their learning journey, they still have a lot of that sense of entitlement around, you know, I want to support organizations who are going to be accountable to me because I'm giving them the money. And I want to support organizations who are doing work that makes me feel good. And so this bias towards like charity versus social movement organizing and being uncomfortable naming capitalism as a problem and being uncomfortable naming the fact that the majority of accumulated wealth in North America is stolen, either through stolen land, stolen labor, stolen lives. And so we see every day how important it is for us to be held accountable as a group by the grassroots organizers that we want to be supporting, because there's a huge ongoing risk that we could drift into the territory of like self-appointed allies and end up doing more harm than good. And so we try to struggle against that. And we're really grateful to the grassroots organizers who have chosen to put their energy and their time into helping to keep us accountable and helping to keep our analysis sharp. And of course, we pay those people for their time because we recognize that it's a, a huge gift of expertise that they're giving us. And it's an ongoing need. You have been listening to my interview with John McFedrin Waitzer and Andy Way about Resource Movement. To learn more about the organization, go to resourcemovement.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.